Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondor here, and I'm excited to bring part two of my conversation with Anique Besso. So if you heard our conversation last week, you know that Anique is actually my first ever second time guest. So I brought her back for a really great conversation about a number of different topics. And it was so great that we got a little chatty and it got a little long. So we split it into two. So last week we talked about the, we actually talked about her experiences with pregnancy and sort of because she also, uh, similar to myself, recovered from an eating disorder earlier in her life, she reflected on and actually had a client reflect to her the privilege she had in being able to enjoy her pregnancy because of kind of being at peace with her body at this point in her life. So we reflected a little bit about that. We also reflected a little bit about our experiences with miscarriage and how this relates to size privilege, but just also general experiences in pregnancy. We don't delve into it in great depth, but if you're interested in that conversation, make sure you check out last week's episode at drshawnhondorp.com forward slash 50 for episode 50. There's also a link in the show notes. We also talked about what eating disorders are, what they look like, and how you can tell the difference between an eating disorder versus disordered eating and really what you should do if either of those are the case and what your options are. In part two of this conversation for today's episode, we're gonna talk about how to create a health promoting environment for parents, partners, and kids, and why it really is often simpler than we make it. And this is somewhat of a pet peeve of mine, I would say, of this idea of People with a history of eating disorders need to be treated differently, and people of higher body weights and sizes need to be treated differently. And I don't think that that is most of the time is not helpful. Certainly, there are some times where we need to treat people with serious eating disorders differently, and we need to take that very seriously and get treatment. Um, but barring that, there's a lot of universal ways that we can create a home environment that's healthy for everyone, um, not only health promoting in terms of behaviors, but also healthy in terms of mental and emotional well-being. So we talk about that. We also talk about a little intro to sports nutrition and relative energy deficiency in sport. This is something I knew nothing about until this conversation. And we 
talk a little bit about it. And so I want you to consider this is not just something for the endurance athlete. If, even if you're doing um, a mild amount of activity, this may be something that's impacting you. And it's something that is actually relatively easily treated once you figure out what's going on. So we talk about that as well. Can't wait to dive into this conversation with you today. Do you ever worry that you're wasting your life? I definitely did. In fact, I wrote that in my journal many years ago when I was in the middle of the diet binge roller coaster ride. I woke up every day thinking about food, my body, and what I would eat that day to quote unquote be healthy. The notebooks I had filled with calories and points could fill up a spare bedroom. Social events and vacations immediately prompted the thought they will notice I've gained weight or I need to lose weight by then. Deep down, I knew I wasn't living life the way I wanted to, but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. If this is you, I want you to imagine what it would feel like to feel empowered in your body and proud of your choices on a consistent basis. I promise you this is possible and it isn't too late. You see, dieting steals our motivation. It makes us ineffective and lose faith in ourselves. It keeps us spinning our wheels in a system that was never built to work. If you're ready to take that first step to motivating yourself with what matters to you, download my Cultivate Powerful Motivation Guide, which is quite beautifully designed if I say so myself, and walk through the simple three steps to cultivate motivation that works for you in 15 minutes or less. You'll get a simple formula to write one sentence at the end that you can use to motivate yourself on a daily basis. You can write this sentence on your bathroom mirror, put it on the background of your phone, or just read it and repeat it in your mind consistently. Look, I know how much it hurts to live a life worrying that you're missing out, not stepping into the person that you were truly meant to be. You can listen to the podcast all day, but taking that first step, putting pen to paper or typing on your phone is required for true lasting change. It's time to start living, my friend. So it's 100% free. What are you waiting for? Grab your free guide today at drhondorp.com forward slash motivate. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash motivate. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog are for informational and educational purposes only and should not ever be construed as any form of professional advice. If you are struggling in any of these areas or trying to figure out how this applies to your specific situation, always consult a professional for guidance. All right, let's dive in. And then transitioning a little bit, because I think this is an important topic as well, um, you like talking about how to foster a home environment that's weight inclusive and food neutral. And this is kind of for parents, partners, kiddos, right? Families. Um, This is something that you like talking about. And I think that... (laughs) I'm curious your thoughts. I think it's a cool topic to talk about because people get really stressed about like how to do it. And I, I think maybe we'll be on the same page with that. Like there's some universal things that are, we don't have to be so specific to the person like <laughs> yeah. that's struggling. So anyway, I'm curious your, your tips for people and what you want people to know about this topic. Yeah. Um, I love this topic. I think just because, and you know, having um, a baby on the way, it's something that I've like thought a lot about um, Mm -hmm. in becoming a parent, but 
I would say just, I guess, in terms of the home environment, before we kind of get to like the feeding and the food, um, I would encourage people to really have like a neutral stance on their bodies. So, you know, I know for me growing up, my mom was always like, oh, I'm so fat. Oh, like I can't, I like, look at you. You're so beautiful, but I'm so fat. And I think that can be very, very harmful, even if the message you're trying to send to your daughter or your son or your husband is that like, they're okay, but like, you are just so um, not okay. And your body is so unacceptable. So I think talking about bodies in like a neutral way um, Mm -hmm. can be really helpful. And it's funny, like, sometimes I say like, oh, he's so big about our baby. And my husband's always like, no fat shaming in this house. Yeah, being aware too sometimes how your words can be interpreted differently. Um, I would say related to that is to kind of like take away the like good or bad with food. Um, I see this a lot in our extended families, like, oh, I know I shouldn't, but I'm gonna have like another brownie. But they're they're you just like associated like having another brownie with being good or bad when like, it's just okay. You know, if you, if you want a brownie and kind of just remembering that everyone's like absorbing what, how you're interpreting them having another brownie, even if you're only talking about yourself. Yes. Um, yeah, even think- comments on people outside of the home, right? Like, even if you're commenting on like, oh, look at how beautiful she is. She's so thin and beautiful. Like she's grown up to be so beautiful. I remember comments like that about like, let's say a cousin or something. And like these comments get seared into your brain sometimes like, and people don't even realize it. And, or, and, or like, yeah, fat shaming of course would be very problematic too. So, yeah. And I think normalizing body changes, you know, like our bodies are not meant to stay the same size they were when they were 15, when they were 30, when they're 50, like it's just bodies can like change and we, we adapt to like our environment. So it's like, if your spouse or if your child's like, oh, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable in my body. It's kind of like, we can make space to talk about that discomfort and like, oh, like, is there anything you'd want to change? What could help you like feel more comfortable in your body, but without being like, oh yeah, I've seen you've like gained weight and you should be like, be careful that like, I think a lot of parents, um, especially when adolescents are going through puberty, they have this like inner anxiety of like, (gasps) like my daughter is like getting fat. But often what we see on growth curves is that like, you know, children will like kind of go up above their curve and kind of stay the same height wise. And then everything just like normalizes over like the next few years. But Mm -hmm. a lot of times with like the comments from like aunts or parents, that's usually when a lot of the restriction and preoccupation comes in. So normalizing like body changes and like how we can, what we can control is like our behaviors, but like environment has an impact on that. And like our bodies kind of just, always want to keep us alive and like adapt. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Puberty is a very crucial time. Um, but even before then, I think that's, those are all really important points too. Yeah. So I guess that's what I'll say like briefly for like the home environment. Um, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the food, I think, um, somebody I really like is Ellen Satter. I don't know if you've heard of her, but I love her work. Yeah. Oh yeah. We've talked about a little bit on the podcast division of responsibilities. The yes. <laughs> um, 
Yes, I think um, what she says is like so pertinent and like so helpful for parents, especially that like experience their own anxiety. Um, but I think one thing that we often overlook, especially my experience in the United States, like everyone was so busy that a lot of families like never ate meals together. And I think kind of making meal times this like sacred time where you connect as a family and where you can like talk about each other's days and just like share experiences around food um, can make the eating experience um, a lot more enjoyable and pleasant. Um, and then as a parent kind of like deciding like what, when, and how, and then allowing your child to kind of decide how much they eat that like sometimes they're hungry and they want more. Um, sometimes they want less, but, you know, offering like a variety of foods and really being sure to not like demonize foods, mm -hmm. um, during the feeding experience. And what I love about Ellen Satter's work is that she actually has like guidelines kind of like through like infancy to like pretty much, I'm going to say adulthood, but like adolescence, um, yeah, I know her like general model, but I'm definitely going to have to check that out because yeah, her work makes a lot of sense and we're not having any struggles with food. Although it's like, yeah, definitely not sitting down as much as I would like <laughs> a lot of like me frantically moving around and like, well, they're sitting down eating. So I have to do the dishes and it's like, no, that's probably not good. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm actually, yeah, looking forward to looking at that because, um, and it, it's just so interesting. There's so much, there's so much more nuance than we give it like the, just have this and have this. It's like, not just about what specific nutrients goes into our body. It's about the eating experience and connection and, and just the emotional reaction to having control. Just last week, I, my four-year-old, I, um, she, my son had already finished his dinner. Cause again, we're a little haphazard with things. And he was about to get like this cupcake that we had two little cupcakes from a friend. And she said she hated all the dinner and she just wanted the cupcake. And she was so mad at mm. me. And, and, and so she was freaking out and I'm sort of like rolling my eyes. And, and so I finally, I don't always do this perfectly. So this is like, a, I'm sharing a good parenting moment. I think or something <laughs> that went well, but this is a lot of times I just like get frustrated, but this time I went over to her and I just like gave her a hug and I was like, I know you want the cupcake. And I just like, was like, I know. And I held her and she just like bawled in my arms and I could just feel her relax. And then she went and she ate the dinner and then she got her cupcake. Like everything was totally fine. Oh. So it's like, sometimes it's just about the experience of like wanting control and wanting options. And even though I did say like, obviously we're having this and then we're having this, like I had that control. It was just interesting. And she's three times since then, this is like days ago. She's been like, remember when you held me and we cried, can we do that again? <laughs> like, it was just this experience oh. of like wanting to be, <laughs> I was like, oh, it was just a reminder. We just all want like a safe space to feel what we want to feel. Right. <laughs> yeah. And like connection, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really cool story it's kind of sweet but yes it's so much more than like we get so caught up and I'm I'm grateful that I knew some of these things and not that I'm perfect at all with it and that I don't have my moments but um grateful to know that I don't have to stress like if they don't eat that much today that's fine or if they have extra Halloween candy whatever I don't get I don't have to stress about it because I've I've gotten this pretty ingrained, um, even though, you know, our family does have a high genetic risk of cancer. And like, sometimes my anxiety ball, like bells go off, but I'm like, 
it's the big picture and, and it's, it's comforting. So. Yeah. I imagine as a parent, that would be, it, it's very difficult because we obviously all want like the best for our children. Um, but then it's like in wanting the best, you can almost like do harm in some ways in air quotes. Yeah. Um, because it's like, Oh, like just don't eat like too much of that or don't have this and whatever. So I think it always comes from like a really good place. Um, yeah. but it's just how like children and even I think adults, right. Can like really internalize those messages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the good news is like the way we can approach adults and kids. Yes. is different, of course, developmentally, but there's a lot of similarities, right? Like remove shame and judgment from our bodies, remove shame and judgment from foods and, and then listen and, and kind of respect individual choice. And there's like some rules of thumb that can work across families, but it is hard. I don't want to minimize at all. Like when kids, especially when you start this work a little bit later, um, when kids have developed certain preferences and they have certain habits, right. And you're trying to figure out, I know I work with a lot of parents that they're like, well, my kid's older and they like, they're just used to having this. And I want, how do I change that behavior? So that's a little bit more of a nuanced conversation, but big picture, those are some hopefully helpful takeaways for people. Yeah. And then I want to make sure we have time to talk about sports nutrition, because you have an interest in this, a lot of knowledge in this, and I'd love to hear. So you even had put in your, these question lists that I, you and I had talked about Mm -hmm. before. I don't even know what relative energy deficiency in sport is. So I would love to just know, like for someone who, you know, maybe they're an athlete or maybe they're just like wanting to get back into exercise. Maybe they're not active. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know about fueling our bodies from a sports or evidence-based nutrition perspective? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I would say in general, like sports nutrition is not as like hard and air quotes as like we make it out to be, I don't know, in like magazines or whatever. Like I hear Mm -hmm. sometimes a lot of people who like exercise regularly, but they're like, and then I came home and I had like my protein shake and it's like, most people probably do not need protein shakes. Um, to kind of recover from their sport. Mm -hmm. But I would say like where relative energy deficiency in sport can come in and this can really impact everyone. It's not necessarily that you have to be like a high level athlete um, to be impacted by that is that a lot of times people just are not fueling adequately. So aren't getting an appropriate amount of calories to um, meet the energy demands of just like daily living and sport. Um, And I think that can happen for a lot of reasons, I would say like in the general population, because there's like such a misunderstanding of like how many calories we need daily just for functioning, a lot of people are under fueling and over-exercising. So, you know, if, um, I don't know, Nancy goes to the gym, like for an hour a day, like four times a week, but then it's trying to like lose weight in air quotes and is only eating 1200 calories it's like she actually might have signs of like relative energy deficiency in sport because it's just that probably like the energy that she's expending like during the exercise and then also to recover is not being replenished by the calories that she's taking in. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas let's say, I don't know, um, John, who's like a marathon runner and like trains like nine hours a week might be like hyper-focused on like getting all his nutrients and making the protein shakes and like, I don't know, eating like quinoa salads or whatever, 
but in that effort is actually not fueling appropriately either because he's like not getting enough like energy dense foods. So mm -hmm. it can kind of like present in like various ways. Mm -hmm. um, where I've also seen it happen is like people who are training, but also work like very intense jobs that they just literally in their window of time don't have enough time to like fuel their bodies. Um, mm -hmm. So where relative energy deficiency in sport is like very interesting. Um, and I think I would say like in the last like five years has been like talked about more and more um, in like the sports realm um, is that there are a lot of like physical and mental um, consequences. So, you know, I, I work with a lot of um, long distance runners, um, endurance athletes, and, you know, people are like chronically injured. They have stress fractures. Um, women have amenorrhea. Um, men can also present with like, let's say signs of depression, um, decreased concentration, increased preoccupation with body shape and weight. Um, and it's actually like, it's something that can just be treated by increasing energy intake typically. Um, so uh -huh. it's fascinating, but a lot of doctors will normalize those symptoms in like high level athletes by being like, oh, it's okay that you don't have your period, you're a runner. But it's like, it's actually like extremely dangerous um, for, for women and men, right? Like men, it's like less talked about like the hormonal changes, but like those hormonal changes, especially during developmental years can be very, very different, like very dangerous um, long-term. Yeah, what are some of the outcomes that can happen with that? So with um, women, I know the women's um, outcomes a bit better, mm -hmm. I would say just because of the research. Um, but let's say with women with amenorrhea, um, what we talk about a lot is like bone health. Um, so because of the, the shifts in the hormones, it's that your, your body's actually typically like pulling calcium from the bone. So women can be diagnosed with osteopenia, which is um, basically like porous bones, but we lay down our bone mass up until age 30 ish. Um, so during those years, if you're not laying down like healthy bone, it's just that at 30, when your bones start to kind of get depleted, yeah. um, you're more likely to have osteoporosis like early on in life, um, which can be dangerous. A like, you know, 18 year olds, 25 year olds that have stress fractures, which is like a micro fracture in the bone. It's not like a complete fracture. Um, that's not normal. But then as like a 50 year old, you could be walking and like slide, like slip, and then you break your hip because yeah. you just have very brittle bone. Yeah. Um, typically so amenorrhea does not have like long-term consequences, like on fertility. So if you refeed, um, and they get their period back there, there isn't necessarily like a long-term impact on fertility, which is good news. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But it, yeah, it could impact definitely. I would imagine sports performance, but then really can, could have like impacts for the rest of your life, potentially, particularly if it's in that critical period where you're not getting that like bone, like bone mass kind of built up in a healthy way. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say like reds in general, um, like has a lot of like impacts just like in terms of like immune functioning, um, performance recovery, um, but can also lead to 
you know, burnout long-term, like it can impact the trajectory of your sport. Because if you think of somebody who's like under fueling and like continuing to try to train at a high level, they're like not performing as well as they want for like the time Mm -hmm. they're investing. They're feeling really tired, really burnt out. Um, They're going through these like injury cycles. Then they're like, oh, do I really like this sport? Then they kind of feel isolated because like their their whole environment is like around the sport. They're having difficulty performing in school because of concentration. Um, maybe their relationships are impacted too. So it's it's something that can really have like dire effects on like somebody's life long term. Yeah. Is there um like sort of standard like is it sort of like in terms of refueling and figuring out calories is there a standard obviously I know it would vary based on individuals but I'm just getting a sense like we have these these calorie ideas that are we know are wrong like 1200 or 1500 I would imagine it's quite a bit higher than that particularly if it's like an endurance sport right but like yeah it it, how do you kind of work with people to figure out like how much they need to be eating or if someone's like worried that they might be under eating, how do they figure out what to do about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are definitely like equations, um, like in the position paper for relative energy deficiency in sport, they kind of, um, like talk about like an equation that's very specific to calculate like the energy that somebody is burning, um, Mm -hmm. and what they would need to take in based on like, lean body mass and all of that. I would say the way I go about it is I usually use um, the Institute of Medicine equation and then multiply it by an activity factor as like a baseline. And then um, I'll usually like increase that based on um, kind of the, the client's reports. So over time, so we don't want I I wouldn't recommend people to like try to calculate their, their calories in general. Um, but obviously for us as professionals, it's kind of important to estimate like how much is somebody taking in right now versus how much do they need and how do I get them there? Mm -hmm. Um, but usually what I'll do is just adapt like the structure based on the person's reports, how they're feeling. You'll see a big difference usually in practice and in their like performances fairly quickly. I would say the turnaround for reds is like probably two to three weeks. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of like hearing you. I'm, I'm sort of laughing to myself because um, I only, I ran one marathon only. I ran some half marathons prior to it. And, and uh, my last diet was like right at the beginning of the marathon. Like as I was starting to train, I was doing my last attempt at Weight Watchers. And then I pretty quickly was like, this is not working. <laughs> like I pretty quickly <laughs> was like, and that was like, the end of it for me I was finally like okay I'm like for real done so it wow. came together to, so there was some intuition there I was like this is just not gonna work there's too many points to calculate and like anyway yeah oh my gosh yeah not, not really a so sustainable training and I remember I was able to kind of like, I was pretty healed up mostly with a lot of my stuff. My, my journey felt very gradual in many ways and um, mm. over many years, but yeah, at the very end, I was just, I was able to kind of laugh at myself. Like, nah, this doesn't make sense. Like, what am I doing? And uh, yeah, one of my like really intuitive eating experiments was like, a, I think it was the week before the marathon. I was like, I'm going to just like let myself eat or like, or buy all the carb things that I normally like felt were like too carb heavy to bring into the house. And, and I, I was just like, Oh, wow. I didn't eat nearly 
as much as the apple jacks as I thought I would or like the, the mac and cheese it was just it was sort of that experiment so but yeah I think and even now yeah it I, I for us we switched to more of plant predominant like eating style and that feels really good like from an athlete perspective although I'm not doing much endurance now but like having that ability to like eat as many like carbs has desired is like seems very very helpful and like really really useful for performance I bet like doing this work can be pretty reinforcing to see people's like come back to their body in that oh, way it's I don't crazy. know yeah so, and it's like magic too yeah it's so cool um That's and amazing. athletes are like a really cool population because they're so motivated by their sports so they're like yeah. listen like just tell me what I need to do and like because the like the result is so quick. They're kind of like, oh, okay, whatever, like whatever works, like my sport is kind of like my number one priority. That is, yeah, that would be, that would be fun. (laughs) Um, Are there certain things that we should know just as like the, the average person, like pre- pre-workout or post-workout or like even if someone's just like I'm just walking and like do they need to know anything specifically should they just listen to their body and at what point do we need to be more intentional about our nutrition when does it sort of uh, shift perhaps yeah I would say um I like a lot of people um talk about like exercising like fasted I would say like that is kind of like a myth of like the benefits so if you feel good exercising fasted because like you don't want to like like wake up earlier in the morning, that's fine. But like, you can actually have a snack if like, it might actually help you like be able to like push a bit further in your Mm -hmm. training. Um, So that would be like a recommendation I would have for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of having to be mindful of like the fueling afterwards, most people do not have to do that. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, you can come home, shower, then have your breakfast. And like, you don't have to have like your protein shake within like 30 minutes or whatever, Mm -hmm. where, um, that becomes a bit more important is like how close together you have your workouts. Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody who's trained like twice a day or something like that, like there actually does have to be really like an intentional, um, timing of the intake. It's just so that you can replenish your glycogen stores quick enough so that you're not just completely depleting yourself all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so when your, your volume of training, um, increases, or there's kind of like specific target workouts that you need to do, or let's say you're competing, um, somewhere and you have like multiple games, like on a weekend, um, the nutrition timing can be very, very important in that circumstance. But like, Mm -hmm. if you're just like, a normal human who's like going out for a walk or like going out for your 30 minute jog in the morning. It, it doesn't really matter. Just kind of like eat appropriately, um, you know, varied foods and you'll be good to go when you feel like it. Yeah. Even like a longer, I guess I had heard like some longer runs, you have to be a little more intentional, but that's really like even up to an hour run. I mean, I wouldn't do much more than that unless I was training, but even that, it sounds like just yeah. your body for the most part. It's as of 90 minutes typically, but then you would have to actually like bring some sort of fuel, um, for your workout And for the average person who's not doing athletic, like intense athletic performance training, you actually don't want to over-exercise because that can cause more stress to the body. Um, sometimes if you're not really intentional about it and, and you have to really check like, what's the why behind this. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, that's, uh, that's good to know. And uh, yeah, because there's a lot of, like anything, there's an industry push, right, to make us feel like we need our pre-workout stuff, we need our post-workout stuff. And a lot of times you can do it with whatever sounds good or like whatever you have at home. But yeah, I would definitely, I've never been a fasted worker out or I always like to have something because it just, I don't know, it just feels better. But that's just, like you said, if it feels good to you, nothing wrong with that, but it's not, that is a myth. So that's good for people to know too. I guess as you were talking, the last myth I think is like so important to debunk is like protein is actually not as important as we all think. Um, mm-hmm. so a lot of people are usually like over consuming protein and under consuming carbohydrates. And for most sports, like, unless you are a bodybuilder, um, carbohydrates is the most important, um, macronutrient. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, <laughs> so, definitely. That's something. Yeah. My husband and I both, we, uh, we are not in, I have not run, I think I've run a 5k since, uh, in the past five years and that's it. But I used to be into running, but my husband's gotten actually more into running a little bit again, not in any intense way, but we both found that when we shifted away from the kind of standard American, like we need to eat meat at every meal, we need to have our protein to more of a plant predominant, more, more carbs, more whole grains, like rice, pasta, like beans, we still eat meat, but he, his running's actually greatly improved. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I think we both are finding, like, we're able to sort of like, I'm actually finding I can like run quicker after like a meal than I could before. Like it's, I feel like sort of like more energized more quickly, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. I'm like, it's probably a shift towards like the more carbohydrate has at least for my body felt really good. And I think a lot of people have that experience. So kind of interesting. That's really cool. That's good to know, like to kind of have like a real life experience. Yeah. Yeah. We were both like sort of of that, like many people, I think it's like, I need protein to feel full. And we're like, Oh, well not, and we still get protein. Right. But just in a different way. So yeah, exactly. Well, we got, we covered a lot of different things today. (laughs) I, I appreciate your, your time and expertise as always. Is there anything else that you want to like any other takeaways we want to kind of wrap up here with? I know we dabbled in so many different um, topics. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to think the takeaways in general. Um, maybe like eating's not as complicated as we think. <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. that could be a yeah. takeaway. And um, like, if you can, it, it takes work to like, get in tune with your body and like work with it, but it can be really rewarding. We can see like all these benefits mm-hmm. of like, whether it's sport or whether it's like, feeling more in tune with like your family or your body during pregnancy. There's, there's some themes there, I think, and that it's challenging, uncomfortable work at times, but can be, sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder. depends, but. I think that's what it is. It's that like the eating experience is not that complicated, but I think the eating experience in our lives through like different experiences, different relationships can become very complex. And that's where sometimes it might be helpful to like, you know, talk about it or work with somebody to like untangle, um, the complex relationship that we might have with food. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Anique, for your time today. It was fun as always. Thanks for having me, Sean. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Part two of my conversation with Anique Besso. The main takeaways from this conversation is 
that the fact that creating health-promoting environments at home for kids and adults, regardless of your history of an eating disorder, disordered eating, or any other area of the continuum, is not as complicated as we often make it. So it's not that there aren't some people who do need specific strategies or specific treatments. Of course there are, but as a general rule of thumb, there's a lot of things that we do know that are really helpful for all homes. And some of those things include keeping foods and bodies described in neutral language. So avoiding good or bad language or anything that implies that you should feel guilty or shameful for eating and making a certain eating choice or having a certain body size. And this is within this context, you absolutely can still aim for health promoting behaviors without labeling foods or humans as good and bad. And Again, I often get sort of this idea of like, well, but this food is bad for me or it, it does have a low nutrient density. And while that may be true, labeling it as bad is almost universally unhelpful because usually it implies something about the person eating the food that's bad again. Um, and and so the reality is that there's a lot of like food enjoyment and preferences absolutely should factor in. And we don't need to just food, view foods as sort of their nutrient component parts. There's much more to the eating experience. And if we look at cultures who have really healthy relationships with food and their bodies, they are not just focused on the nutrients, they're focused on the experience of eating. And again, preferences, what you enjoy, what tastes good for you and not restricting yourself is a big piece of a healthy relationship with food and your body. And then we talk about relative energy de deficiency in sport. I keep messing that up. Um, we talk about how it's actually quite common and can have really significant impacts on mood and sports performance. So if you are not feeling great before um, or particularly after your exercise or you're noticing some of the symptoms um, of just low energy or you know worsening mood, and it might be worth looking into this because this is pretty common among diet culture with this idea that, you know, 12 to 1500 calories is, you know, ideal and you maybe eat a little bit more if you're exercising. And that's just not true and really, really unhelpful, particularly as you're trying to get your body to, you know, so many people that I work with, they're like, I want to be strong. I want to, you know, continue to build on my body's functioning and, that's something that could really impair your ability to do that if you're not nourishing and fueling your body effectively. So this is something that we don't dive into details because it will depend on the person. As Anique was saying, there's some formulas to start off with, but you have to tailor it to the individual. And so this is something that Anique um, practices virtually at her practice would be a great place to get a consult and get some assistance with because as she mentioned in the interview it doesn't often take that long once they kind of identify what's going on so that's something I would highly recommend you do if you're noticing some of those potential symptoms and so often we attribute it to oh I'm just tired or I'm just depressed or these other things but it could very well be that you are undernourished, under fueling your body for optimal functioning. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate you. Um, make sure that you check out our conversation from last week. That's drshawnhondorp.com forward slash 5050. 
And then if you want to also, if you didn't hear my conversation with Anik back at episode 16, we talk about the health at every size movement and many of the myths and misconceptions about it. And um, that one's a really popular episode. So if you haven't checked that one out, check that one out as well. All right, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful week and talk to you soon. If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books, and I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you, as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the Bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U.S. and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime. I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes. Make sure you check it out. You can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness, but also about topics like courage, vulnerability, and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun, downtime, or some meaningful stories. My recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology, and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's D-R-S-H-A-W-N-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.